Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. It's one of the most iconic images in the history of the Olympic Games. Derek Redmond hobbling to the finish line with his father after tearing his hamstring in the 400 metres semi-final at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. Derek was determined to cross that line and he talks to me on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. I think you'll find it incredibly insightful into what he says was going through his mind when he tore his hamstring at that event. It's pretty amazing. It's an amazing story of grit and determination and a really interesting part of this conversation with Derek Redmond. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I do speak to gold medalists and champions and and Derek is a champion he was part of the 4 by 400 meters relay team the great british team that won gold at the 1991 world championships but there's also a lot to be learned from failures and how people grow from them but I wouldn't even say that 1992 was a failure for Derek it was a moment of of heartbreak for him But he admits in this podcast that he didn't want to talk about it for many, many years because he didn't want to think about it. It was a heart-wrenching moment for him. But over time, he's realised what we all get out of it and he makes it clear in this podcast. But I think it is clear that we're inspired by him, the fact that he never wanted to give up, that he wanted to cross that line. And I think that's a lesson that we can all use in our everyday life. So it's pretty cool to speak to Derek about that. And of course, he does talk about that victory in Tokyo in 1991. That team with Chris Akabusi, John Regis, Roger Black, all winning gold, defeating the pretty much heavy favourites in America to win that gold medal. And he talks about how they changed the lineup just before the race and it proved to make the difference and that Derek ran one of his fastest 400 metre laps ever. So it's a brilliant conversation with Derek. After athletics, he became a professional basketballer. He competed at a high level in rugby sevens, in motorcycling, in kickboxing. And he talks about the transferable skills from athletics to all of these various different sports. It's really good when it comes to the idea of mindset, how you can win an event before you even step on the track or step 
into the field of play. It's a brilliant conversation with Derek Redmond and it's coming up in just a moment on this episode of The Best in the World with Richard Parr. And I mentioned things like grit and determination. and These are a lot of the topics that we, we cover on The Best in the World with Richard Parr. And we talk about them further in our new Facebook group. It's called Best in the World. Search it on Facebook. I'll put a link to it on the show notes page. And it's where me and you and everyone else part of this community can have a conversation about all of the things related to sports and high performance. So go and check it out on Facebook, The Best in the World group. All right, let's get started. Let's speak to Derek Redmond, the 4 by 400 meters relay gold medalist from the 1991 World Championships. He is the best in the world. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Derek Redmond, world champion from the 1991 championships where you won the 4 by 400 metres relay. Welcome to the best in the world with Richard Barr. You had an incredible career. But first, let's try and catch up with what are you up to at the moment, Derek? Um, So, oh, blimey, for the last 20-odd years, (laughs) um, I've been a motivational speaker. So uh, I spend a lot of my time travelling, well, pretty much the world. uh, speaking at conferences and events for, for, for different companies and organizations. Uh, I'm also a director of a company called Thomas International that specializes in psychometric assessments, and I'm the group performance director. So, um, uh, so yeah, so keeping myself uh, very busy at the moment. Oh, that's interesting. The psychometric test, like, what does that involve? So psychometric assessments more than tests because tests almost means like, you know, there's a right or a wrong. Well, sort of the assessments that we do, it really, depending on the actual assessment, it, it looks at things like your, your, your work-based behaviours, your personality, for want of a better term. So a lot of people might be familiar with them when it comes to uh, applying for a, you know, uh, for, for, for a job, for argument's sake, and part of that process might be that that organisation might ask you to, to take a quote-unquote personality test to see if you're the right person for the right role. Oh. Um, so international or a company that, that's these particular assessments um, and there are different assessments if you, depending on what you're looking for in a certain individual what you're trying to find out then whether it's their emotional intelligence work-based behavior whether it's their speed of learning whether it's their potential within a job so there's lots of different sort of assessments that we that we provide is that something which could be useful for say a sports team it is in sports now so um yes uh over the last I mean, we we have a division, uh, Thomas Sport. We have a, uh, a section of our, we have a company actually within. Uh, there's three companies really: Thomas International, which looks after the business side, then there's Thomas Education um, and Thomas Sport. So yes, we you know we are uh, pretty prolific in, in in the world of sport. Um, and yes, obviously the obvious one is in, in team sports, um, uh, and also really relationships between coach and athlete for want of a better better. T- Yes, it is used in sport um, in, in this day and age. Mm. So have you done an assessment with the four runners from the 4 by 400 metres winning team from 1991? <laughs> Should you have been uh, together? Yes, I have. Uh, oh, yes, really? Yes, I have. And yes, I should have done. Um, Albeit a few years late. Um, but it is quite interesting. So I did um, an assessment, one of the assessments that looks at your work-based behaviours, um, your motivators, your demotivators, the way you like to you know, prefer to communicate. Um, um, and, and that sort of thing, and, and yes, it, 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 to be honest with you, it didn't throw up any surprises. 
um, pretty much some of the um, traits within uh, the behaviours of all th- all four of us, I guess, um, are still here now that we had 26 years ago. Um, and you know, people always ask, was it an act? You know, was it luck that you guys decided to to change the order? And, and we all say we've always said no, it wasn't down to luck. It was the fact that we, you know, communicated with each other. We had a conversation. And we came up with what we thought was the, the best order. And without going through the whole story now, when you look at that story and you look at the behaviours that, that um, the assessment kind of um, revealed, there was no surprise that that conversation took place in the way that it did and we came to an agreement in the way that we did because of our behaviours. So, um, so yes, I, I have assessed the guys and, and none of us need stuff or anything like that. And we were certainly a, a good fit and, a, and uh, well, it showed on that night that what we did was the right thing. Mm, it was indeed, and, and we will go into that in a little bit more detail, but uh, we've caught up with uh, a little bit of what you're up to at the moment, and, and we'll talk a little bit about your, your post-race career as well, but let, let's get to the start now, Derek. How did you first get interested in running in, in, in the 400 metres in the first place? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Um, well, there's two questions, really, because um, mm. the, the question is, how did I get involved in running? Mm. Um, because I didn't start, obviously, as a 400-meter runner. So to answer that part, very simple, seven years of age, running in a, my school sports day. A young guy from the local athletics club came down to present the prizes, gave a little bit of a speech, explained where the club was, what days they met, at what times. My parents were there, and I simply asked, can I join? Because I fancied giving it a go. Um, they said yes. And I went down to, as it was, Milton Keynes Athletics Club. Um, and I started at the age of seven, doing a bit of everything. High jump, long jump, triple jump, shot put, javelin, a um, bit of sprinting, bit of middle distance. And um, all of the above bar the sprinting, I wasn't particularly successful at. So it didn't take long to sort of drop all those uh, particular events. Uh, and I stuck to, to sprinting, 100s and 200s. And I ran 100s and 200s until I was about 15. Um, in between the times I'd moved from Milton Keynes to Northampton, so I was, one particular day I was running for a club in Northampton, 
And I ran the 100, finished third, ran the 200 and finished third. And the young guy who was supposed to run the 400 metres didn't show up. So our team manager was desperate for someone to run the 400 because it was a team competition. And even if you came last in your event, you got a point for your team. So it was eight points for first, all the way down to one point for eighth. Mm. So, and at the end of the day, it was a tizzle with the most points that won the competition. So just to put someone in, it was a point because all the points obviously uh, added up and totaled up at the end. And um, my dad just said, why don't you give it a go? Or in fact, his quote was, why don't you have a go at running the 400? What have you got to lose besides another race? Um, we kind of had a bit of a laugh and a joke about it. Um, and I had no idea how to run the 400, but I sort of uh, gave it a go. Um, and ended up winning the race and breaking the county record in the first 400 I ever ran. And, you know, for my age group, that was. And I quite liked that feeling of winning. <laughs> and I thought, oh, next week I'll, I'll run another one, which I did. And then so the next, it was the second half of the season, so there wasn't that much time of the season left, maybe a month, five weeks or something like that. And I ran 400s for the rest of the season, um, won them all, each time got quicker and quicker and decided, that's it, I'm going to be a 400 metre runner. And that winter, started training for 400s and then uh, the following year, ended up finishing second in the English schools, getting my first international and as they say, the rest is history. Mm, amazing. So during that time, Derek, uh, how how much training were you putting in and, and how would that work around your, your school day? To be honest, at that time, when I was at school, you know, we trained uh, Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays, um, sort of after school, six, seven o'clock. Um, and then, you know, we'd train over the weekends as well, Saturday mornings and, and, and or Sunday morning. So it was kind of a five-day uh, situation at that point, a five-day routine, if you like, and it was for a couple of hours, two and a half hours a day. Um, as <clears throat> excuse me, as things went on, then the training picked up, and I remember, you know, Mondays we started to do some, you know, some sort of circuit stuff, and then Tuesdays on the track, Wednesdays was on the track, Thursdays was on the track, Fridays was always a bit of a rest day, and then Saturdays would be, you know, going for a run, and Sundays again would be a, 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 another track session. So then it kind of stepped up to sort of six days a week. And that's when, you know, uh, when it really started to to become more of my life. And I, w- I would say that was possibly, you know, once I'd left school, sort of teen onwards, when it really started to become almost a full-time job, if you like. Mm. Was was it always enjoyable or, or did it start to become more of a job? No, 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 never. It never became a job. It was always enjoyable. Don't get me wrong. Some of the sessions were awful. Um, and as I got, you know, better and, 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 you know, sort of higher ranked in the world and it did become my profession, if you like. So when I did become a professional athlete, I still enjoyed it. The problem was some of the sessions, as I say, weren't good. And, you know, there was certain parts, the winter months were always the worst and they were there where we did all the donkey work. So none of the glamorous stuff, none of the fast stuff, no racing. It was just, as I refer to it, pure donkey work. <laughs> And they were, they, they, some of those sessions, you know, you would either throw up or pass out at, and you knew the sessions that that was going to happen. And I can't say you looked forward to it. I can't say I looked forward during it. And I can't say I enjoyed the recovery after. So, um, mm. There were certain sessions that were tough, but that's, you know, that's part of it. And that's not just in my event. That's in any event. And I guess in any sport. Mm. Yeah, It's that kind of weird sensation, isn't it? That uh, when you're being sick, it's like, oh, well, I hate being sick, but actually this means it was a really good session and I've worked really hard. Well, yeah. 
Well, that that was the thing. I mean, you know, I know things have changed now, and we know a lot more about the body, and there's a lot more mm. sports science involved. But back then, if you didn't throw up or you know a couple of times a week and pass out at least once a week, you hadn't put a, you hadn't put a hard week's graft in. Um, I'm glad to say things have, have changed, and it's quite like that anymore. But that was the sort of attitude, almost you know, more better, um, and you know, quality over quantity. Where obviously the whole training programs has <clears throat> changed a bit nowadays and it's not quite as as um i won't say barbaric but it's not kind of kind as raw as it was back then mm. is there anything that that you may have learned in, in the last 20 years or so just from the the outside in learning about the, the changes of the body and the sports science that that you wish you you had during your day is there anything in particular that you've seen and you've gone oh if only we had that when i was training well i mean facilities to start uh, equipment is always is always great um but it's actually my coach who, who still coaches this you know these days and i'm not completely up on all the sort of uh, training regimes and programs and, and, and all sorts of what's going on these days. However, my coach does every now and say to me, if he knew then what he knows now, you know, my career would have been, you know, completely different um, for the better. And the, the, the kind and the style of training that they do now, he said, you, me and my body would have really, you know, reacted well to that sort of stuff. Um, you know, so uh, he, he he does say that God, if he had known all the stuff that he knows now, um, you know, things would have been different, possibly less injuries and, and, and that sort of stuff. So, so yeah, of course, you know, as, as time goes on, techniques improve. We find out more information. We learn a lot more, and you know, there are things. But you know, I'm sure in 20 years' time, you could say the same to the athletes of today, and in 40 years' time, you can say something to those athletes 20 years down the line, and it'll always continue to improve because that's the nature of the booster mm. was that coach tony hadley yes tony hadley and not the lead singer of spandau valley <laughs> um, even if you did win gold yeah absolutely <laughs> yes <laughs> um so what was your relationship like with, with tony and uh, and how did it first begin um my relationship with Tony is still very very good uh, we had a very close relationship we we don't speak obviously as, as often as, as we used to because I don't see Tony every day where at one point I was pretty much every day or, or, or talking to him um, uh, every day but we still have a great relationship we still share uh, conversations Tony's still coaching as I say and he will get the phone up to me and ask my advice on athletes that he, he is he's now coaching um, he'll ask for my advice. He'll sometimes ask me to talk to his athletes. Um, so the, the big name that he's coaching at the moment, uh, one of is a guy called Matthew Hudson Smith, who um, is you know the sort of the, the, the top 400 meter runner in the country, arguably at the moment. So you know I spend a bit of time uh, with Tony and you know chatting with him and keeping an eye on what he's he's sort of getting up to. So we still have a very good relationship. Um, I've known Tony. A number of years. In fact, I think one of the first years I met Tony would have been about 1983. Um, so I'd only been running 400 a couple of years. And he used to coach an athlete by the name of Phil Brown, who was arguably one of the world's best relay runners. Um, he was synonymous for this, for the, for the last leg. Um, but a great 400 meter run in, in, in an individual anyway. And he um, was the guy I wanted to 
to train with. And I remember the first time I asked to be coached by Tony, and Tony actually said, no, I don't think you're ready. You need a couple more years with your current coach. Um, there's no need for you to go from right where you are and what you're doing to come and join me because things are going quite well. And then a couple of years after, I went back because I, I had improved and I did want to take the next stage. One, a club in a better league, for want of a better term. Um, and secondly, I still wanted to train with Phil. And I went back to see Tony and, and, and Tony, uh, we had a couple of training sessions and Tony wanted to see one, how, how I kind of, operated mentally, um, how I fitted in with the rest of his group. And I don't know, I went and did maybe two, three, four sessions with him over a couple of weeks or whatever. And then he made a decision. Yes. You know, I think you would make it a, you know, a good addition to his, his training group. And, and I joined Tony in 1985. Um, and that was that, you know, um, I still argue he still is my coach, even though he doesn't physically train me, but I've never, I've never, fired him, sacked him or said, right, that's it. You're officially no longer my coach. You know, even when you retire, you just, he's still your coach, you know, yeah. uh, and, and he always will be. Yeah. I think it'd be a bit harsh if you sacked him now. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> we haven't done much for him in the last 10, 15 years. So <laughs> I'm not impressed with his work. I'm really not. <laughs> now, you mentioned that with the changes uh, in the last few years that, that Tony said to you that, you'd have had less injuries and you really did have a horrid time throughout your career with injuries. Just how much, how mentally was that tiring? It's, it's, it's it's very tiring. Um, I think the mental side comes into it once you've been injured and you're trying to recover to get back to where you were. Uh, There's a number of things that go on in your head. One is the frustration of being injured yet again. Um, and that in itself brings in issues of trying to stay focused and, and motivated um, and positive that you can get back to where you are. So you're fighting demons and battles um, in, in, in that respect. Um, and it's, and it, it is quite tough, um, you know, having that self-belief and confidence that, okay, I'm injured, I can get back to where I was. Um, the realisation that, uh, and this is a horrible uh, sort of realisation, that the athletics world won't, won't stop and wait for you. It carries on as if you don't exist. Um, and ideally what you want is you want a magic remote control that you can press the pause button and the whole of the athletics world pauses until you get back to where you were and then you can press play again and carry on. And in reality, that doesn't happen. The world just goes on. Everybody continues running, racing, and you're not even mentioned. And that's kind of hard to deal with because it kind of puts into perspective that you're just, uh, you know, another statistic and another name. And if you're there, you're there. If you're not, the, the, the show will go on. And it's selfish. Um, but it's something that all athletes kind of go through because you end up in quite a lonely place regardless to the amount of people that you've got around you, supporting you, you know, helping you. It is quite a lonely place to, you know, to be sitting and watching people run races, win races in times that you know you can do. Mm. Uh, and I've sat and watched people win major championships in times where I think, my God, you know, I've run quicker than that already this season, um, and they're winning, you know, major championships with these with these times. It's a hard uh, to use the phrase that my dad used to say. It's a hard pill to swallow. Um, so that's that's quite tough. Um, you know, coping with the injury, having the belief 
and the confidence that you can go flat out on the injury once you have gone through that recovery because you always have that belief or that slight doubt what if what if it breaks down again and if like me you had multiple injuries of the same particular muscle same area then that becomes harder and harder as the you know as the time goes on and you know I went through a stage where I thought I was just getting myself in shape to get injured and I used to think I was the injured person in the world at one point mm. um and that's kind of how i used to view it but you really do have to kind of fight those negative thoughts and think this is the one this is the time this is the time we're going to get it right we've done this slightly different we're going to take longer to you know recover we're going to do this we're going to and we're going to get it right and then you break down again i think the one thing that always kept me going was the belief that i had in myself of what i felt that i could run if and if only i could stay injury free so for me belief in my ability um that if i could stay healthy i know i could run pretty quick uh, and unfortunately i don't believe and i suppose you could argue every athlete says this but i certainly don't believe i ever ran as fast as i could have done um and i know it because my personal best was done in a race where i actually slowed down just do enough just or was just doing enough at the world champs in 1987 to qualify um and if i if i'd known then what i know now I wouldn't have slowed down. I would have kept on going um, just because if that was the last chance I had of sort of running a quick time, then I would have given it everything rather than just do enough to, to win the race and, and, and qualify for the final. Um, so for me, that was the biggest thing that I kind of grabbed onto was that self-belief knowing that I can run a lot quicker than I've already run. And my biggest problem wasn't, gosh, can I run any quicker? It was, gosh, can I run quick without breaking down? Mm. Yeah, I can understand that. Uh, and of course, you you had injury troubles going into these world championships in 1991, and you nearly didn't race, did you? Correct. Well, I mean, I was always going to do the individual, um, and I was typical sort of Redmond season. I was, for want of a better term, chasing my tail. So, in other words, I, I, I you know, managed to, to sort of scramble into the um, the British team at, for the individual 400. Um, albeit not in the manner that I would have liked to have done. So I was sort of, if you like, on the back foot, but I managed to scramble in to the team. And it was a case, because I had uh, a few injuries that year, I hadn't raced as many times as I wanted. So I was trying to play catch-up. And rather than using the qualifying rounds just to qualify, I was using them, one, to qualify, but two, to get another race under my belt, which is not a great way to be running in a major championship. You know, you, you, when you go to a major championship, you want all the races that you need. And, you've, you know, you've done those races. You've run a, you posted a quick time. You're in great shape. You should be able then be able just to qualify, just do what's needed to qualify and, you know, build yourself up to the final. Well, I was having to not only qualify, but use those races as races. So in other words, I had to run them as normal races, as if it wasn't the heat of a world championship, as if it was just a race because I didn't have the luxury of having posted a quick time where I could, I don't know, go into a race 75% of speed and, and no one was still going to qualify. Mm. I was having to give it everything, hoping that what I've got in, in me is enough to get me through the first round. Plus then you've got to make it look like you're not giving it everything because if your competitors go, hey, oh, he's, he's flat out here. His pedal, his, his pedal is down to the metal. You know, he hasn't got any more left because mentally that gives them an edge so you're you're running flat out but you're trying to make it look like you're just going easy 
Um, and it's not a great way to be, you know, in a major championship. And I, I scrambled through the heats um, the second round and I got as far as the semi-final. And no matter how I ran a 400, I couldn't seem to run any quicker than about 45.5, 45.6, which at world level is not particularly quick. And it was very frustrating. And I remember after getting knocked out, and it was the first major championships that I'd ever been to, and not made a final. Mm. Um, every major championship that I'd competed in, I'd always at least make the final. And I, you know, as you can imagine, I was pretty distraught. And I remember speaking to my coach and the coach of the relay team. And I said, look, you've got five guys who are in good shape, who are running well. I don't think I'm in shape to run uh, in the relay. And I don't want to jeopardize our chance of, of winning a medal because we knew we could win at least the silver. And there was a possibility that if all went well, we could you know, give the Americans a bit of a, a run for, for their money when it comes to winning the gold. And I, so I, I actually wanted to drop out. And I can remember being on the warm-up track with my coach and with the coach of the relay team, a guy I remember, Frank Dick. And then both saying to me, well, look, just run the heat because there was still about eight, seven or eight days to go before the heat of the of the uh, four by four. So I had seven or eight days of, of, of training that I could put in plus run the heat. So we agreed that I would train for the next six, seven, eight days, however many days were left. And then run the heat, and then after the heats, um, they would make a decision on whether, you know, I should run in the final or not. Um, because both Frank and, and, and Tony agreed, I am getting quicker each race, which I was, but I just didn't think there was enough time to get quick enough in such a short space of time. So I remember Tony sort of devising a bit of a, a very short training program where literally every other day, I ran the equivalent of a race and it may not have been over 400, but I'd run a 300 time trial or a 200 meter time trial or, you know, so I, I kind of raced in training. So rather mm. than doing reps, you know, sort of doing, doing, you know, three or four or five different reps in a, in a session, we would warm up uh, as if it was a race and do a one-off sprint, you know, um, work on some techniques and bits and pieces. And as that sort of week of training went on, um, the times did begin to come down and start to tumble and it looks, you know, like, okay, definitely I'll, I'll run the heat. So I, you know, I, I sort of, the times convinced me to, to run the heat uh, and I ran the heats and ran a quick time. I actually, um, you know, ran all of a sudden dropped nearly, or I dropped a second off almost all of a sudden I'm running 44 seven rather than 45 seven. And I don't think I particularly ran as quick as I could have done again, did enough to qualify. Um, and then when it came to picking the order or, and the four guys for the final, you know, Frank selected myself, uh, to run the, uh, the first leg. And actually I felt quite comfortable with that because I think I'd proven to myself that I was in shape to, to, to do myself justice and more important to do the rest of the team justice. And I didn't feel I was going to let them down. Um, and so, yes, so I almost didn't run, but thanks to the, foresight of not only my coach but also um frank who you know said look don't don't give up yet you've got a, you know a week to try and get things right let's have a look after the heat so it was a, a gamble that, that paid off mm. and, and eventually you you did your leg and, and you did it as low as 44.1 i believe yeah for, for time. And, and and you mentioned back in 1987 when you you got your personal best which you actually kind of slowed down in 
during your lap in this four by 400 meters, there's been a few conversations I've had on this podcast where some athletes have been speaking about getting in the zone. Were you in the zone in that lap? Um, every race I compete, I always, if you want to use that phrase, get in the zone. My, my Tony and I used to call it getting in the groove um, mm-hmm. because we used to use the word groove for the simple reason to be a champion, um, you need two things. You've got to be physically fit, which is kind of obvious, but you also need to be mentally fit. You can get in the zone and get yourself mentally fit, um, but being in the zone doesn't mean physically you're fit. So we used to use the phrase, you know, you're in the groove, which was mentally and physically fit. Um, and I think there was a difference. So, so yes, every race that I ran, um, every good race that I ran, every certainly every race in a major championship, I certainly used to get myself in the groove, as I referred to. Um, certainly in the zone, and you know, if I wasn't injured, um, then yes, in the groove. So at those world championships, I certainly wasn't in the groove for the individual 400. But it did come around for the for the relay. But that happens before you step on the track, you know, mm. um, you know, way before you step on the track. If, if you're not in the zone or in the groove by the time you step on the track, you ain't going to get in it. Mm. Um, it's too late. You know, all that preparation, the mental preparation, happens a couple of hours, you know, before uh, you know the race because you have so much that you've got to go through. Things like, you know, the the uh, just the reporting process, and I'm not sure. if aware of what needs to happen uh, in a competition, whether it's an individual or a relay, track, field, doesn't matter what it's an hour before your race, you have to be fully warmed up and ready to compete or your event. Um, and you report for your race. Some places that go into a room the size of an average classroom if there is that. And it's just you and you have seven competitors in this room. And you're basically left there for 45 minutes or so to sit around and wait. You're all collected in that. An official will come in and check your numbers and check get everything, give you your lane draws and confirm all that and give you your lane assignment numbers and or jump in order, throw in order, whatever, all that sort of stuff. And you're left in the room with the other seven guys that you're going to be battling out a gold medal for. Um, and that's one of the places where races are won and lost. Not out on the track or in the field. It's actually in that particular uh, scenario. So you have to be physically ready way before you step on the track. Uh, and I've seen athletes crack in the, in that scenario in my event. I've beaten guys in that room before we get up on the track because the pressure is is just overwhelming for some of them. Um, and, and they can't take it. I won't mention uh, the athlete's name, but we had a British athlete coming up at, I think at those same World Championships in 91, um, who... Um, our warm, our reporting rooms were actually tents, if you like, marquees, in the infield of the warm-up track. So you do all your warming up, and then you go into the infield, and that's where you reported for your race. And there was three or four of these particular tents. Around the outside of the track was a load of portaloos, and we had a, a British athlete um, who reported for a race, and he was, you know, this kid was a Commonwealth medalist. He, he was no slouch. And the pressure got that much to him. He ran out of the warm-up room and locked himself in one of the toilets and had to be talked out. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, so these can be quite pressure situations. So, um, you know, the mental side of it does happen way, way, way before you get onto the track. But going back to your original question, because I kind of slightly come off piste a little bit, if you like, is yes, for that particular relay race, all of us mentally were 
you know, as strong as I guess we've, you know, we've, 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 we've had ever been, certainly as a relay team. Um, the fact that we had come together and decided to go against the, the original order of, of, of the team management, come up with our own order, stick to our guns, um, again, against the team managers, not all of them, but certainly one of them didn't particularly want us to run that order and was, you know, well, was, all right then, if you think this is going to be the way, go for it. But, you know, there was nothing going to stop us doing that. We were, you know, we were so mentally strong that this was the right order to do. It was part one of the reasons why I think we uh, we ended up winning the race. So what was it like then, Derek, when when you were able to step on the podium and, and say that you were a world champion and collect that medal? <laughs> um, what was it like? Blimey, that's a, a million dollar question. Um, I mean, obviously, it's fantastic. It's a great feeling. It's people, you know, I often say to people, I've heard the question asked and I've asked people the same question to see if they can guess what it is. And people always say, what is that feeling when you step on a podium? Um, and actually, that feeling is one of relief. The first thing you feel is relief. When they put that medal around your neck and the next time you watch a major championship, it doesn't have to be in athletics, it could be in any sport. When a medal or a trophy is handed, you know, it definitely works on podiums. When a medal is put around um, a, an athlete's neck, his or her neck, the first thing they do is they take a massive sigh of relief. <laughs> and you see them blow their cheeks out. And it's, a, it's relief because what comes flooding back is all the doubts, the thoughts, the risks that you took, the gambles that you took, um, the training, the hard work, all that sort of stuff comes flooding back to you. So you have that elation, obviously, and you're really happy. The medal goes around your neck. It's one of relief. And then the next thing, people become quite emotional for the simple reason, everything comes flooding back, all the commitments, all the sacrifices, all the hard work you and other people have put in, um, the commitments that your partner, your parents, your coach, your physios, your doctors, your sports psychologists, your, you know, your exercise physios, whatever you've got in your, you know, members of your, your, your team, everything comes flying back to you. And that's when you start to get quite emotional when people then start to lose it and the bottom lip starts to quiver. So you go through a number of emotions, um, but it's a great feeling. Um, but it, you do go through these things, you know, and this is all in a, five minute period if that um you just go through this roller coaster of emotions but i think the first thing is is obviously the, you know the one of elation but it is for me the first thing is that one of relief because we gambled in the order you know we gambled in putting me in the race i managed to stay healthy nothing broke down during the run you know we didn't drop the baton you know um john ran fantastic he wasn't even a 400 meter on it you know Putting him on the on the third leg, bringing him in was a, was a gamble, and that's got its a whole list of risks. Um, Akabusi on the last leg, he never runs last leg. Um, you know, was he going to do what he said he can do? Uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, so it was all uh, a bit of a, um, a gamble, but it all paid off. High risk, high reward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So um, it, it it was all worth it. Um, but it's, as I say, there's lots of risks um, that, that, that go with all that. And you, once it all sort of pays off, as I say, you have that massive 
yes, it worked, and 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 you know, it it is that first feeling of of, of relief, as I said. Um, once you've gone through all that, and you've gone through the, the you know the quivering lip and the emotional side, and you've got people like Akabuki on your team, <laughs> all of a sudden it's a bit of a party. Um, you know, Chris is very vocal, he's very funny. We get on very well, all four of us there. Um, really do get on well, and you know we spent many a year training with each other. In fact, we're still pretty close now. Um, you can, you know, we we pleasure in taking the mix out of the Americans, which, funny enough, they weren't so happy about. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, a, a great experience to, to have been for. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. We'll come back to Derek in just a moment, but I want to tell you about Patreon. Now, one of the things that we talk about on this podcast from time to time is how these different sports stars are able to get sponsorship. And different stars have different perspectives on this. I remember Brian Clay being very good on it and Sonia Looney was really good. Those episodes are all on iTunes and Stitcher and Acast. Go and look at the back catalogue there. But we also need money to be able to do this podcast for you. And so what we've done is set up a Patreon page. That means each month you can give us a small contribution which will help keep the lights on here. Please go and check out patreon.com forward slash best in the world. It's also a place where I give a little bit of news about the podcast ahead of time so you know what's going on before the rest of the world. All right, so that's patreon.com forward slash best in the world. All right, let's return to the conversation with the 4 by 400 meters gold medalist, Derek Redmond. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. You mentioned a lot about emotion and one year later it is one of the most emotional scenes in Olympic history. The the sight of you uh, pulling up with your hamstring in the in the uh, I think it was the semi-finals of the 400 meters and, and you were determined to finish and you ended up hobbling your way to the finish line with the assistance of your dad. Do you remember that very well or, or is it a little bit of a blur? <laughs> No, I remember it very well. I spent most of my time talking about it. Um, yeah, yeah, no, um, I, I remember it very, very well, unfortunately. Mm. So just just uh, give us a, 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 a bit more details about it for, for those who haven't seen it. <laughs> um, well, uh, as you said, it was in the semifinals. Um, I'd won the first two rounds. So I was the fastest qualifier from the heat. Um, uh, I, I you know, pretty much walked around in 45 uh, I remember the coach saying to me, Tony saying to me um, for the second round, he says, do exactly the same. So I virtually did in around 45-0-2. So I was only a hundredth out, um, which I remember him laughing and joking and saying, he said, I told you to do the same, <laughs> not run a hundredth of a second quicker. <laughs> so we had a bit of a, you know, a bit of a laugh around it. And, and then both races were just very easy. I really, to use a quote, didn't really break a sweat. They were lovely, easy runs, well within, you know, with, with myself. There was no no idea of any problems. There was no niggles. There was no tightness or whatever general tightness that you will get generally from sort of, uh, you know, from running the major companies, but nothing major. 
And uh, yeah, it came to the semi-final, and we, it was just a you know another race. This time, I was going to finish the race. So in other words, I was going to run a full race rather than messing around, just because I had 24 hours to recover before the final. I didn't want to take any risks. Um, win the semi-final, guarantee lane three, four, five, or six, and you know we're in, in a good position to to, to have a go on uh, on the day of the final. Um, had a great start. Um, technically everything was going well going down the back straight and then there's a side as, uh, as I always refer to it, I heard a funny pop I thought it was a noise in the crowd so I kind of said to myself come on Redmond concentrate and then a few yards later I felt the the, 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 the pull of the, the hamstring and mm. you know grabbed the back of my leg um, and I'm, you know down the back straight you're going pretty quick and to give you an idea my split down the back straight of a 400 when I'm running well is around about 10.2, 10.3 seconds. Granted, it is a rolling start, that, that 100, but it gives you an idea that we're running pretty, you know, pretty quick down the back straight. Um, so to pull a hamstring at that speed isn't the most pleasant of feelings. Um, and I grabbed the back of my leg and wanted to stop as soon as I could. And um, I remember sort of hitting the, the, the track and, you know, a few choice words were, were coming out of my mouth and you know along the lines of out you there I think I pulled my hamstring in the Olympic semi-final I wonder why that's happened to me um type scenario um and then I don't know after a while I remembered where I was and what I was doing it was the Olympic semi-final I remember thinking to myself that I wanted to see where all the athletes were um and I sort of sat up and looked on the track and they were I, don't know, I had about 120 130 minutes to go and I just thought, if I get up now and start running, I'll catch him. Um, and again, going back to being mentally in shape, I still believe that I could catch him. So it kind of proves my belief that you need to be physically and mentally in shape to be a champion because obviously physically in shape I wasn't. But mentally, I was still in the same shape as I was prior to my hunting being pulled, which was confident that I could finish in the top four. Um, so the fact that I still in my mind felt I could finish in the top four that's why I got up and started hobbling um, now it might sound crazy to, to most people um, and I guess in one part it is but when you are when you build yourself up physically and mentally to take you know to take on the race it takes a reasonable amount to kind of knock you off that perch and when you are in that shape as I say you, you know it doesn't just disappear easily um, so when I actually got up and started hobbling, it was with an aim to qualify. Um, the reality only hit when I got to the 200 meter mark, so I hobbled 50 meters, and I had a look to see whether I was gaining on them, because again, in my head, I'm catching these guys. Um, and it was only when I kind of looked across to see if I could see if I was catching these guys, then I realized it all finished. Mm. Um, and that was the point when I realized it was all over. And then it, that was at the point when I decided I'm going to finish this race if, if, if it's the last race that I ever run. And the last thing I expected of 100 minutes ago was, was my old man to join me on the track. Mm. Oh, well, that's a, it's an amazing story of, of determination, Derek. Uh, I, I watched it again last night and I'll, I'll be honest, I was nearly in tears myself just watching it, just uh, <laughs> what, what you were able to do. It was, it was incredible. Uh, I've read in an interview since then that, that you said you were angry for two years. Uh, I've got a bit of a pronged question here. Uh, what was daily life like during that time and, and how, how did you eventually stop being angry? 
It wasn't so much. Um, I suppose it was angry. Um, I think it took me two years to get over it. I didn't particularly want to talk about it. I didn't particularly want to watch it. I didn't particularly want to have anything to do with it. And it took two years to, to kind of deal with it. There you go. Um, of course, I was angry. I was angry because I was in the best shape of my life. Um, it was my second Olympics. I'd been injured at my first Olympics when I had an outside chance of a medal. I had a really good chance of, of, of a medal, obviously, at, at the Olympics. Yeah, of course I was angry. I was frustrated. But it, was, it wasn't something that I particularly wanted to, to talk about. And the problem that I had is everybody wanted to talk about it. <laughs> um, here we are 25 years later, and surprise, surprise, everybody wants to talk about it. So when it was two years old, you know, it was, it was no different. Um, so it was very frustrating, very annoying. But the one thing, the worst day of my life, is something that everybody wanted to keep bringing up mm. um, and, and, and talking about. And I didn't, in those early days, see what people saw in it or understood what other people got out of watching it and, 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 and sort of gained any kind of, I don't know, motivation or, 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 or comfort for themselves out of what turned out for me to be you know, a really bad day and I didn't win a medal that I felt I could have and should have won. Um, so yeah, it took a couple of years for me to kind of realise that people looked at it in a completely different way to the way that I was looking at it and, and, and viewing it, you know, and, and it's only when I began to see the way other people viewed that particular incident, then you kind of go, oh, okay, I get what people see and the amount of emails and letters and messages that I used to receive from people saying you know, how they've been through this in their life, they've been through X, they've been through Y, they've been through Z, whatever it is, and they saw that and it just helped them to stop giving up and all that. I thought, blimey, I had no idea that this was going to be received in, in the way you know the way that it was. Mm. Yeah, no, and uh, it was truly inspiring. And you retired, obviously, because of the, all of those injuries. And then, remarkably, you ended up playing basketball for England, doing rugby sevens, then doing superbike. Um, all, all of these amazing different things. You, you've taken something which was a negative with these injuries into, again, more high-performance success. Uh, obviously, yeah. the, the rugby sevens, you you would have your speed, and, 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 uh, and I'm guessing in basketball as well. But what were some of the other transferable skills that you had from your time as as a runner that you were able to use in basketball and rugby? As you know, whether it's basketball, whether it's rugby, whether it was racing motorbikes, whether it was kickboxing, that was something else I got into. There's, there's, it's, it's, it's simple. It's the mental approach. Um, I wasn't the best basketball player in the world or in the country. I wasn't the best rugby player in the world or the country, the best kickboxer in the world or the country, or the best motorbikes in the world or the country. But the one thing that I do do very well is mentally get myself in shape to compete at whatever it is I, I, I'm doing. And I'm going to repeat myself here, you know, to, to, to be the best, you've got to be physically and mentally in shape. And the one thing that I used to do, and, you know, whether I was playing rugby or certainly when I was racing bikes, which was just at club level, um, and the guys, certainly my team used to, you know, laugh and joke with me, is I would prepare for a race on a bike the same way mentally as I would for an Olympic final. Uh, and I would do the same thing the night before, 
getting my kit ready. It was just different to it. Um, I would get up and, and do my own sort of warming up in my own special way. The exercises might have been slightly different. But mentally, I'm going through exactly the same process because I'm getting ready to race at a certain time. Um, so, And it's the only way that I sort of know how to do it. Um, so any sport that I got involved, there's only one way I know how to prepare for it and have to prepare for it like an Olympian. Um, like it's um, and my wife will, will, will tell you that she, you know, she says, God, whenever you get into a sport, you can't just do a sport for a hobby. You've got to get into it and, and do it fully. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not very good at having hobbies, you know, and, and, and just, you know, taking up fishing and going sitting by the edge of a, a river once every seven or eight weeks. Cause that would, if I'm going to take up fishing, I'm going the whole way, mm. you know, I'm, I'm, you know, it would be all, 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 all or nothing. And, and that's, how it is with me and, and, and sport. So um, with all my relatively success in all the different sports, really, it wasn't because physically I was the most gifted and talented at it. Yes, there was, a, I guess, talent and ability along the lines at various levels in different sports. But for me, the biggest muscle that makes a difference is that one between your ears. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's where competition could be won and lost. I remember for argument's sake, so in 2013 I took up kickboxing. Never had done it before. And um, uh, I started I don't know, May, June of 2013. And by October 2013 I'd become national champion for my category for my, uh, and for my wow. ability. And um, I remember in one of the competitions that are in that particular competition, because I ended up entering three different competitions in that competition, and, or disciplines in that competition. But the main one I wanted, which was the points, is basically a knockout competition. So you win your first fight, you go to the next round, you win the second fight, you go to the next round, so on and so forth. And I think I may have had, I don't know, three or four fights to get to the final. And I remember every fight, that I had again. I go through my own process, go and do my own thing, my own warming up, and I've got all the instructors there with me, and goodness knows what. And I walk onto the mat, and I get my last sort of few instructions from my. Uh, and I would walk onto the mat and stand on my side of the line, and I'd be waiting for my opponent, who's now getting his last minute of instructions um, from his coach, and he would walk onto the mat. So we're both standing behind our lines, which is maybe a meter or so apart. Um, and the referee's kind of given us the final you know, instructions, a bit like you get in a boxing match. Yeah. And I would always stare at my opponent in the eye. And all the way through the rounds, not one of the guys would stare me back in the eye. In my first fight, the second, the third, and the fourth. And the only guy that stood almost toe-to-toe with me and stared at me in the final uh, uh, sorry, was the guy in the final. And before all the other fights, I remember thinking, I've won this already because this guy can't even look at me. If he hasn't got the, I don't know, the, the confidence to look me in the eye before the fight, and I'm not talking snarling at each other, yeah. but, you know, just that, you know, sort of straight face, look, look him in the eye, come on, it's you against me, nobody else, let's get it on type thing. If they didn't have the ability and the confidence to do that, well, how are they going to have the confidence to kick and win? Mm. It's not going to happen. So mentally, I'd won those fights before I'd even even started because in my mind, these guys haven't even got the ability or the confidence to look at me. 
Um, so they certainly ain't going to have the ability to outpunch, outfight, and outfox me. And none of them did. And then when it came to the final, the guy did stand, sort of take look me in the eyes. And I remember thinking, great, about time. I've got a fight on my hands. <laughs> and I did. And I think I only won it by a point or two points. Um, so for me, it's, it's the physical side. It really is the mental, you know, the mental approach. But the other thing that was really interesting in, in that particular competition is, you know, word got around that Derek Redmond, the Olympic athlete, is, you know, he's competing in this. Oh, my goodness. And people come to say, blimey, how are we going to beat you? You're an Olympic champion. And it's like, well, one, I'm not an Olympic champion. And even if I was, it was at running, not kicking people. <laughs> but again, mentally, that was enough to kind of have an edge and give you one up on, on, on other people. So it is amazing what the mind can do and, and, the, and, and, uh, and the way that the mind actually works. And I, I use that in my favour and to my advantage rather than to a disadvantage. Mm. So what sport's next for you, Derek? Well, the one that's killing me is golf at the moment. Um, that's the one. That's the one that's <laughs> killing me. Uh, I'm actually thinking of, of playing a bit of rugby again because um, uh, because of work, I'm not as active as I was, and I do miss um, getting involved in a bit of sport. I also miss the, the sort of the male bonding bit and a bit of you know blokey time and and, and whatnot. Um, and as much as I love my golf, um, I, I've only sort of started golf in 2014. Started back playing golf. Um, uh, I'm a bit of a fair weather golf at the moment, which I need to sort of take some time out and, 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 and play a bit more certainly for winter and get some lessons. Um, but I, I'm interested in playing a bit of rugby game just for the social side of things and just to get out and do something. So I'm looking at playing some vets rugby or something like that. Mm, fantastic. Well, it's been really good to speak to you, Derek. It's been really good to learn from you and your amazing life and, and your amazing stories. Um, just before you go, Derek, why don't you just give us a reminder on where we can find you on social media or your website or if we need you as a motivational speaker? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, if, you know, from the speaking point of view, um, com is my website. Um, and that will put me through to uh, my management company that's, that, that works in, uh, they look after me, so they'll be able to find me through there. Um, I'm on Twitter at, um, at Derek underscore um, and on Instagram, it's at and Maria Redmond so there's the three places that you can uh, get hold of me Fantastic well Derek I've really appreciated speaking to you on this programme thank you for being here and thank you for being the best in the world Thank you very much The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr Thanks so much to Derek for being on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. We've spoken to a few other track greats in the past on this podcast. Maybe go back and listen to my conversation with Veronica Campbell-Brown, the multi-time Olympic champion in sprinting. I've also spoken to the reigning 100 metres world champion, Tori Bowie. They're all on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Acast and of course at sportachino.com. If there's any particular star you'd like me to interview, why don't you drop me a line? I'm on Twitter at Richard underscore Parr. I'd love for you to tell me who you'd like to hear from. But until then, I will be back next week with another Olympic champion, world champion, world record holder or world number one on the best in the world. Goodbye. The best in the world podcast with Richard Parr.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 